I love that song. And every time I sing that song, I have a little picture in my mind of a darkly lit room in the kitchen. We're around the table. We've lit the first or second Advent candle. And we're now singing, O Come, Come Emmanuel. There's a little red-headed boy that when we get to the part where it says, Rejoice! Rejoice! He stands up along with everybody else. They put their hands to the ceiling and they're singing with all they have. That's a Renfro Advent memory that is there every time I sing this song. Y'all sang it much better than the Renfro family sang it. Uh, We didn't always find the right notes, but the joy that's there. And this morning, the question is, are we rejoicing, FCF? Are we rejoicing that he has come, that he is with us? The long-awaited Savior has come, not just to the earth in general, but to you specifically. And we, if you missed this morning the testimony of uh, Mike Tankersley Jr., um, just seeing the work of God in that is such an encouragement. And we want to spread that, not just to our friends and family, but to others as well who need to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're in Nehemiah 3 and 4, and Christopher, you did a very good job reading that. Some people ask, what did he do wrong? Why did he have to read all those hard names? <laughs> but you did very well, brother. Thank you. And some good questions. Why does God have us do that? As most of you know, I used to play on a basketball team called Athletes in Action. It was a Christian basketball team. We were all ex-college players. Many of us had been drafted in, in higher rounds in the NBA. And uh, we were a ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. And our purpose was to take every opportunity with the platform of basketball to be able to share Christ. And so we would travel around the country, both in Canada and the U.S. and really around the world, and we would play against some of the top teams in the collegiate ranks. Uh, And then we would get an opportunity at the halftime to be able to share a testimony of how Christ had saved us and a gospel presentation of how they could come to know Christ. And I remember one tour was in 1984, and we had 27 games in about 35 days. And we started off playing University of Texas El Paso, then we played Texas Christian University, then we flew across the country, played University of Maryland, we played Duke University, we played University of Alabama, we played Memphis State University, we played Tulsa University, we played Washington University, we played Arizona State, Arizona... At the end of that tour, we were 24 and 3. But you have to ask the question, why would these teams, these college teams, invite another team to come in and play before their season started? Why would they come in and even invite a Christian team that they knew they would have to hear the gospel shared Why would a coach want us to come play their team? And the answer is real simple. Opposition. Competition, if you want to use the athletic term for it. Competition, which makes their team better. Any person in athletics knows you only play as well as who you compete against. 
And the goal of all these coaches was to get a top-ranked team in there that wouldn't count on their record, but give them the chance to be able to play guys who were really on the border of pro, pro ball, to play their college team and to really give them a good test before the season started. And so we always had a full slate because the coaches knew the value of competition. They knew the value of opposition. As we look at Nehemiah today, last week, remember, we talked about uh, how got these keys to rebuilding Israel or rebuilding life in general, okay? And we have to ask the question, if God is sovereign over the universe, why didn't he just remove all opposition? Why didn't he just obliterate all opposition and make everything easy for his people? Nehemiah coming into the city. Imagine this picture. Comes into the city, everybody's, you know, cheering and throwing roses at him. And, and all the people in the surrounding nations are coming in to say, oh, it was so wonderful to have you rebuild the house of God. Praise God. I mean, can you imagine that picture? That's not the picture, is it? The picture is he comes in, he doesn't tell people why he's there. And once they find out why he's there, he has opposition immediately. God has so ordained it in his economy to not remove his enemies, to not remove opposition to his work. And there's several reasons for that. We'll try to unpack that as we go. But as we'll see in this, these two chapters, he allows opposition for his own purpose, for his own glory. He, he allows opposition in your own life as you struggle against your own sin, the, your own flesh. He, he allows opposition in the church from within and from without. He allows opposition to nations as well. Um, so let's look at, we're going to look today at how to face opposition. How to face opposition. One pastor has kind of summarized this passage. I think it does, does well with it. When the enemy opposes us, as he surely will, we should respond with prayer, work, vigilance, and Christ-centered focus. This is a very practical message, friends, because in every sphere you're in, there's opposition. There's challenge to be faced. So we face it with prayer, work, vigilance, and Christ-centered focus. In chapter 3, we want to first look there. Remember, Nehemiah shows up about 445 B.C. to Jerusalem to repair the walls. He is really the last word in the Old Testament along with Malachi. Those are kind of the last books written before we have 400 silent years. And then the very next thing that happens on God's timetable is, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Christ comes. So Nehemiah's work, obviously, is to protect Jerusalem and to stabilize it. But he is still preparing this city for the coming one who 400 years later would show up and he would go to the temple 
And he would be in and out of Jerusalem teaching. Even as a 12-year-old boy, he would be in the courts and listening and learning and, and asking questions. So we're only 400 years from, the, from Christ's first coming. So that kind of keeps us in our context. About 445 B.C. is when Nehemiah shows up here. And notice he gives the call we talked about the other day in chapter 2. He told the man, listen, we're in a bad state. Uh, the walls of Jerusalem are down. Things are burned. We are a disgrace. And he basically calls the, man, calls the people to rise up and let's build. Rise up. Let's build. And chapter 3 is really a recounting of what those people did with that call. They rose up and they built. And so we see, first of all, in chapter 3, the community rises to the call. We see several things, and I'm not going to go through the passage. That's why I had Christopher read it. Because I didn't want to struggle with all those names. I'll struggle with them enough as it is. First of all, let's look at servant leadership. This wasn't just the lower class people who showed up to build the wall. We see servant leadership in the very first verse. He says, Elishib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. The priests came out, came out, showed up, rolled up their sleeves, and put in the sheep gate. Let's look at verse 9. Next to them... Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. So here's a half-ruler of Jerusalem. He's helping with the repair. We see the same thing also in verse 12. With Shalem, the son of Haloesh, uh, the ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. And notice his daughters, they're working with him. We see it in verse 15. Another ruler of the district of Mizpah. And we see it again in verse 19. Um, another section, the ruler of Mizpah. So we have not only just workers out there, we have leadership. We have rulers of districts in the area who are helping with the work. We also see a little sad sign here on verse 3. We see the pride of the advantaged. In verse 3, uh, we see that... Um, the sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid the beams and set its doors, its bolts and bars. It went on down and toward the bottom here in verse 5 it says, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. How would you like that put in the Bible? How would you like to have a book called First Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship? And the names were written, and there was your name written there saying they would not stoop to serve their Lord. May God give us all grace to stoop often to serve our Lord. These nobles had a high view of themselves. Third, notice a lot of the work took place close to home. In verse 23 of chapter 3, we see... Um, that, they, that Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. So their house was inside Jerusalem and near the wall. So they, were, they logically repaired the wall right by their house. We see this also in 28 through 30. And the horse gate the priest repaired each opposite to his own house. And after them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his house. And after him, 
Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. And after him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. But they all repaired them opposite their own places. This was a very personal job. This wasn't just a job contracted out. This was the protection of the people. In 1948, when Israel was rising to become a nation again, Jerusalem was surrounded by the Arabs. And there was an attempt to remove the women and children and get them out of harm's way uh, as the city was under siege. And there was a Canadian lawyer who said, no, 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 we leave the women and children here. Because he realized this fact. If these men are fighting for just land, probably not going to fight that hard. If they're fighting for their women and children, and they know what will happen if they lose, if these women and children fall into the hands of the, of the Arabs, they will fight. And fight they did. So here we see, working close to home, this is my home. There is something very personal about this, and there is the, the defensive um, drive kicks in for men to protect their homes. Four, we see exceptional service. We see Shalom. doesn't say that he had sons, he had daughters. The daughters were out there repairing the wall. We see Merimuth, the son of Uriah, in, in verse 4 and verse 21. They, they repaired two sections of wall, as well as the men of Tekoa. They did too. There's always, there are always people within the body of Christ who, who look for a, a second helping, a second helping of serving. They're not just content with doing their portion. They're wanting to do even more than that. And we praise God for that. There's always that within the body and within the kingdom because of what Christ has done for us. That can we do more? What else can we do for his name? Next, we see that there are no, there's no one here who is a major contractor, major construction foreman. There is none of that in this list whatsoever. These people were not professionals. And yet, they got this wall built in 52 days. The church of Jesus Christ, with ordinary people, can do extraordinary things because of the grace of God. Above and beyond what they can ever ask or imagine. This was pretty much a group of priests, priest helpers, perfumers, some, some people who dealt with gold, some women general household people, this is what this was. And putting this wall together in the face of the opposition. And finally, in this community that rose up for the call, uh, notice that their names are forever etched in the word of God. A lot of times, I think you and I think that the, the work that we do for God that's kind of behind the scenes is forgotten. And the reality is it may be forgotten by men 
But the Bible says it's not forgotten by God. As you serve God, wherever you serve God, whether it's known or whether it's not known, God knows. God keeps a record. In Matthew, in Matthew 10, 42... We read, he's talking about rewards and he says in verse 42, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the same God who every sparrow that falls to the ground, he knows it. He knows everything that you do. And he takes note of it. We also see the same thing in Mark 14, 9. Turn there quickly. Let's see how good you are at your Bible sword drill. Mark 14, 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And this was Mary who came and anointed Jesus' feet. So, As you serve the Lord, whether it's in open view or whether it's hidden, know that the Lord takes note of that. This is, in in chapter 3 of Nehemiah, a kind of a roll call of honor of people who stepped in the gap and came to rebuild the temple and to make the sacrifices necessary for that to happen. So, everything is going great. It's It's wonderful. All these families and the priests and all these people are, are taking on. And we saw the picture of Jerusalem and that incredible wall all around it. And they were spread far and wide. And they were working and working and working. And they were making progress. They were putting the gates in place. And they were building and, and, and getting through the rubble and finding the, the, the stones they needed and putting those things in place. And then we get to verse, chapter 4, verse 1. And, of course, the opposition begins. We're going to look at six types of opposition that they faced. And you'll face a lot of these same things as you serve the Lord. When Nehemiah got there, there was, there was nothing going on. The people were content. Uh, they were in distress because they couldn't deal with the wall. There was no one to really rally them to get the job done. And, and the opposition wasn't that strong because nothing was going on. If you ever played uh, flag, if you ever play um, capture the flag, it's not one of my favorite games. Basketball is, but capture the flag. Um, as long as you stay in your territory, in this imaginary line, you can walk right up to the line and just stand there and look at the person right across from you and smile, and they smile at you. But if you decide that you're actually going to do something, if you decide you're going to actually try to go in and take the flag, if you try in any way, shape, or form to come into their territory, all of a sudden, people come out of the woodwork. They come out from behind the trees. They've been hiding in the ditch. They're behind a bush. And all of a sudden, there are people everywhere trying to chase you down. Um... That's kind of like the way it is in spiritual life, isn't it? As long as we kind of stay in a certain little zone, 
And our country is telling us more and more that zone needs to be in the four walls of our church. And there's only certain acceptable things you can do. As long as you stay there, you're not going to have any opposition. And the sad part about Capture the Flag is it is a very exciting game. If played right, it is a very boring game for people who don't want to be opposed. Can you imagine two teams that don't want to have anybody oppose them playing Capture the Flag? One team stands on this side. The other team stands on that side. And they look at each other. And it's comforting, isn't it? There's no opposition. There's no conflict. God has called us. God called these people to do a great work. And so once the work begins, out from the woodwork comes the opposition. George Grant said once that bright lights bring big bugs. So if you're being a bright light, if you're actually doing something significant, guess what? You will be opposed. So we see that here beginning in chapter 4, verse 1. We first we see anger and rage. When Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of the brothers and the army of of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? So here he is, literally, if you can take the picture, they're working on the wall, and right outside the wall is Sanballat, and an army of Samaritans, Samaritans and his friends, and they're laughing and jeering and mocking. This is kind of stage one. Because you're a Christian, some people don't like you just to begin with. I'm sorry. If you're a Christian, that's just the way it happens. If you, that's, that's the way it works. Notice in verse 7 that we have now four different groups who descend upon this place. We have uh, the army from Samaria. We have the Ammonites coming from the, from the uh, east. We have Ashdod, which is the Philistines, coming from the west. We have the Arabs coming from the south. All of a sudden, all the enemies of God show up. And they're making plans on what they're going to do. Why? Because the people are going to rebuild this wall. You know, some Christians naively believe that if they do things God's way, that there will be peace and harmony. If we just learn how to share the gospel the right way, no one's going to oppose it. If we just find out where God wants us, it's going to be peace and tranquility. That's like thinking, playing capture the flag. If you just find the right place, it's going to be peace and tranquility. The only place that is is totally ineffective. That's the only place where you're going to have peace and tranquility while your team loses. So we see anger and rage in 1 and 7. We see mocking and sarcasm in 2 and 3. We see our good friend Tobiah here basically saying, if a fox even crawls on this wall, it's going to break down. So mocking and sarcasm... If you ever have been at work 
or on a, or on a team or in any situation where you're the only Christian, we know what that's like. We know what mocking looks like. We know what sarcasm looks like. We know all the questions that can be asked a Christian to try to make them look foolish. So this is what we see here. They are trying to intimidate. In 8 through 11, though, they decide to ratchet it up to threats and intimidation. First, just anger and rage. Then we have mocking and sarcasm. That doesn't work. We're going to threaten. Something's going to happen to you. Something bad's going to happen to you if you continue to do this. We see in verse 8, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And verse 11, and our enemy said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So there were threats here, threats to take their life. The natural response is what? Oh my goodness, what are we going to do? We need to stop doing whatever we're doing to make these people upset. That's not the way things work in God's economy. The way things God work, work in his economy is we do what God's called us to do despite the anger and the mocking and the threats. And we're willing to move out for his name and for his glory. Next we see... Uh, these, in this list of six oppositions, one is, is just discouragement and weariness. Look at verse 10. And in, Judea, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. So there's this little, this little poem they're saying to each other. It's almost like a rhyme. But they're beginning to feel it. And in verse 6, notice the wall got built about half its height. Aren't we kind of like that with projects? Get started the project, there's lots of enthusiasm, lots of energy, lots of meetings, and we're going to take this thing for God. We get about halfway into it, it's like, okay, I'm really getting tired of this and I'm not seeing the end anywhere inside. It's easy on the other end, isn't it? When, the, when it's almost finished, we're like, okay, we can finish this up, let's get this done. It's that halfway point where we can really become discouraged. We can really become weary at the task. And this is where they're at. They're weary. They've been working hard at this. They're not making the kind of progress they had hoped to make. And the opposition is taking advantage of it. And then we even see faithless negativism. Even from their own people. Look in verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them, that's code for, were armchair coaches. They lived near them. The work's going on and they're just watching. They came from all directions and said to us 10 times, that's just an exaggeration for over and over and over and over again, you must return to us. Stop doing what you're doing. They're going to come in and kill you. They've told, they've told us they're going to kill you. Now we're going to tell you they're going to kill you. And we're going to help you stop doing this crazy thing you're doing. We want peace. At whatever cost we can have it, let's have peace. So even from within, people of lack of faith, people who aren't even doing the work, 
are going to be on the side making some comments, being critical, and talking to others about it and spreading a mood of negativism in the ranks. We've seen this before, haven't we? Remember when they were going to cross into the, into the promised land and the spies came back? And ten spies came back saying, uh, there's some giants in that land. They didn't tell us about that. And, uh, and we're like grasshoppers to them. And there's no way we can take the land. So let's all go back to the wilderness because it's safe. And then finally, in this opposition, there's fear and anxiety. Fear and anxiety. That's always a tendency in a big project or when you're being opposed is to become fearful, to become anxious, to not think you're going to be able to accomplish it. And look what, what happens in 14. And this is what Nehemiah says. And I looked and arose And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, and you can just hear him say this, do not be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah stood up with all this stuff going on and kept these people on task kept them going forward. So here's all the opposition. And yet, they did not stop in their work of building. So how does Nehemiah respond to the opposition? When oppositions arise, you have several choices. You can run from it. You can try to avoid it. You can compromise. Or you can meet it head on. And when we're dealing with God's kingdom versus the kingdom of darkness, it usually has to be met head on. This wall needed to be built. God's enemies were never going to be happy that the wall was built. There was no way of making them happy. So we must do the work. So notice what he does first. Uh, in verses 4 and 9, they sought God's help through prayer. Anytime we have opposition, first thing we should do is pray. It reminds us of who is on our side. It reminds us of who we are to fear. And it reminds us of who will bring the victory. The Bible says we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we're always in a battle with those Notice this prayer in four. They are, remember back in, in chapter two, he uh, gives a little retort to these people and he tells them, you have no part in Jerusalem, no part of it at all. This time they're outside the wall just railing at them. He, Nehemiah does not even address them. He addresses the Lord and he says, hear o our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their, their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Wow. Notice this is not a request for personal vengeance. They've hurt my feelings. Please take them out. This is calling God to act as judge. 
We see this in the Psalms over and over again as, as the psalmist calls out to God to deal with the wicked. And God deals with the wicked one of two ways. Either he changes their heart and they repent and become a follower of Christ, or they eventually face his wrath. One of the two. The reality here, though, is God's kingdom come, God's will be done. God's kingdom come, God's will be done, and if we have to go over you to do that, we will do that for his glory and his great name. And so we see here, um, he's calling on God to judge those who would oppose his work. There are two competing kingdoms. There's, there's two competing kingdoms in this world, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And the heart of every Christian is, may God's kingdom reign. And may all the kingdoms be put to their knees before him. This is a strong prayer. This isn't a turn the other cheek prayer. The Bible tells us to love our enemies. We love our enemies, we pray for our enemies. That's generally more talking about personal people who are personally our enemy for whatever reason. But when it comes to dealing with his kingdom and his kingdom work, we are not going to stop the kingdom work to please the enemies of God. We're not going to do that. And let's, we're going to see how, how uh, committed they are to that. Secondly, so we pray. He prays to remind, he prays obviously because he needs God's help to do this and to remind the people of where victory comes from. It's not because we all got rallied up and all excited here and we all got this thing done. It's because God is going to work through this. And yes, we're going to all do our work. But this work is not going to get done apart from the work of God. Secondly, they had a mind to work as unto the Lord. These people were ready to work. They were ready to do what God had called them to do. He had prepared their hearts for it. We obviously see some people weren't ready to work, but most of them were. He had prepared them to work. Remember Colossians 3. We just came out of Colossians. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We should be people who are ready to roll up our sleeves and work for his kingdom. Nehemiah did not allow the people to get distracted with the antics of the enemy, but responded appropriately as they continued the work. Lots of distractions. Imagine trying to build on the wall and hear people out here jeering at you and mocking you and, and saying all these things. You could find yourself getting into an argument with them. No, we're not going to do that. Nehemiah did a great job of keeping the people on task to build the wall. When you're playing basketball, you're going to all know all about basketball time it's over with, okay? And you're defending someone. There's what's called a head fake or a ball fake. And these things are meant to distract you or to make you think you're going one way when the person's actually going another way. And your job is to keep your eye right on the middle of their torso. Because guess what? They can't go anywhere that it doesn't go. So if you throw the ball up or you pop your head here and there, it still stays here. Nehemiah knows the way to win this battle is for people to keep their eye on one thing. Building that wall. 
build that wall, one rock upon another, more rubble pulled down, more beams put in place, every gate put in place. Focus on building that wall. Now, we live in a generation where we have access to all the horrible news from every part of the planet. And there's all kinds of projections about what's going to happen to our planet. And there's going to be a solar flare and we're all going to have no power. And we have all these, these prophets of doom out there. And I'm not saying that we have nothing to worry about. But I think it's really important that we have the same mindset that Nehemiah had here on the wall. We need to be building. Yes, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And if something falls right in our lap that we need to deal with, let's deal with it. But we need to be about building the wall. And for us at FCF, it's about building disciples of Christ in our homes, in our church, as we go outside our walls to other people who need to hear the gospel, sharing the gospel, finding people that God's going to transform and pouring our lives into them. And there may be a building project along the way. Maybe it's a building project in Thailand or in Uganda or some other thing that needs to be done. Or maybe it's working with the abortion clinics or whatever the situation God puts in your hands. But we need to be about building. That is why they had the victory here is they stayed focused on it. One pastor stated it this way, and this is what I think really good for us as elders to keep in mind. He says, there are times when it's necessary to refute false teachers and defend sound doctrine. That's part of our job description found in Titus 1. In fact, this is one of the tasks of the elders. But we should never get so distracted by fighting false teachers that we forget our main purpose, which is to proclaim the gospel both here and around the world through missions, both the sword and the trowel are necessary. But the reason for the sword is so that we can use the trowel. Why did they have the sword strapped to them? So they could use the trowel to build the wall. We obviously have to defend against false doctrine. But at the same time, we must keep our minds focused on building disciples of Christ who will build other disciples of Christ and who will therefore expand the kingdom of God. We defend the faith with the the sword of God's word so that we can build his kingdom with the trowel. To get sidetracked onto defending the faith to the neglect of winning and building people is to forget our goal. And one thing that Nehemiah did is he kept them looking at the torso He kept them focused on the wall, and it was all about the wall. Third, they vigilantly kept their eyes on the enemy. So first they prayed. Secondly, they, um, this is where you have short-term memory that really hurts. Um, They had a mind to work. And third, they vigilantly kept their eyes on the the enemy. They just didn't pray a prayer and believe that those enemies were going to disappear. They prayed, they called out to God for help and deliverance, and they strapped on the sword. 
They strapped on the sword. Verse 9 is real clear. Look at what verse 9 says. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Notice, he prayed and they did what? Set a guard. They prayed and they took action. They armed the people and placed them in the low points, verse 13. So all the low places that were vulnerable, they put people there. People used to leave the city at night and go home and then come back. No more of that. You're all staying in the city. You're behind the wall. You're here to protect. Because it's a real threat. And God has told us about it. He's made that known to us. We're trusting him to protect us. But we're also ready to do what? Fight. Because God's work is worth fighting for. They worked with one hand and they held a weapon with the other. Nehemiah and the leaders were there in support. They weren't back at their office somewhere in headquarters looking at the map. They were there visibly in support of the work of the wall. There was an emergency plan in case of attack. Nehemiah had a trumpeter beside him, and if there was ever an attack, they would sound the trumpet, they would all rally to one point, and they would defend each other and their and Jerusalem. And they were ready. They weren't in their pajamas with their little soft, with their little soft socks running around on the wall. They kept their clothes on and they were ready for whatever needed to be taken place. We as believers need to be ready. When there's dangers, we need to prepare adequately for those. At the same time, we need to be building. That's really hard to do, isn't it? to be having a sword on your side and also carrying stuff for for building or, or building the wall. And yet God's called us to be vigilant to protect our homes, vigilant to protect our church, vigilant to protect our, 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 our local community. At the same time, we need to be about building, making disciples, rescuing people who are in bad situations, Showing them the, the grace of God. It's an incredible opportunity. They, in, incredible, 52 days. 52 days and this wall was rebuilt. So imagine, here they are jeering and jeering and jeering and here I am building my wall. And, right, and when we start, I'm looking right at you and you're looking right at me. We're like, here we are. Because you're over here talking to me and I'm over here building this wall. For long, guess what's going on now? I don't see you anymore. Because I'm building this wall. Matter of fact, I have to get up on a ladder to look down and see where you're at. As you're telling me about what you're going to do to me. As I'm building this wall for the glory of God and the protection of the people. God's kingdom grows as we invest in people, both believer and unbeliever. And we want to be about that. You know, next Sunday, we have an opportunity to go out and sing Christmas carols to our neighbors in Fredericksburg. We're going to have our fellowship meal, make sure nobody dies of starvation when they're out there caroling. We're very concerned about that as elders. Should all get completely full. And then we're going to prepare these bags, and we're going to take a page out of the Bayer book. So we're going to say we did that, because it's not our own original idea. And we're going to go out and we're going to sing and there's going to be the Gospel of John. 
There's going to be probably another little book on the gospel that explains real clearly what, why Christmas, what Christmas really is, and give them information about the church. Just beginning to sow some seeds. We really believe that the harvest is plentiful, and we need to roll up our sleeves. And we're not, the good news is there's no manual labor next week. We're not building up a gate. We're not building wall and cleaning out rubble. Okay? We're just going to go and minister in the community of Fredericksburg. And, and what's glorious of it, as we see this picture in chapter 3, is a lot of people got involved in it for the glory of God. So make sure next week that we get a chance to participate in this together. Begin to sow the seeds in this community. We're grateful there's other churches that sow seeds, but there's always more room for more seeds to be sown, for the gospel to fall into the hands of somebody who needs Christ and who knows it. So we don't want to miss that next week. And we want to invite them to come to our new uh, Christmas Eve um, service. But just beginning to get out there. So please join us for that. It's going to be a, a glorious time. You won't have to strap a sword on. We're going to be careful about trying to apply everything from this passage into this situation. Okay? All right. And fourth, notice they kept their focus on the Lord. Verse 14, he says, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Verse 15, God frustrated their plans. And 20, our God will fight for us. Whatever you're trying to rebuild, whether it's your own life, whether it's your family, whether it's to expand the work of his church or to a ministry in the community, these four things are very important. Prayer, work, vigilance, and keeping the Lord primary. Primary. He will give you the strength to go when you're weary and to carry you forward into life. I think God wants and leaves opposition here that we might depend upon him, that we might see our need more and more for Jesus and for the gospel and for him to do what only he can do in the lives of people. You and I have the glorious privilege of sharing the gospel but Jesus is the one who saves them. Jesus is the one who turns their heart. In the testimony we heard in First Light, here is, here is a young man who's raised in the church, raised in the family where he knows the Bible, he knows right and wrong, he knows all of that, and yet he is still in bondage to his sin. His dad couldn't set him free, his mom couldn't set him free, the leaders of the church couldn't set him free. Friends couldn't set him free. Only Christ could set him free. So that's why we go out with joy. Because we have a job to do. Sow seeds. But it is Christ who brings salvation. So, FCF, let's rise up as we move into 2015 and begin to build for the glory of of God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are grateful for this incredible story of perseverance inspired by your spirit and this great work of rebuilding the wall 
by ordinary people. And Father, I think I know the heart of our people that we want more than anything to be used by you. And we already are in many ways, in many avenues. And yet, Lord, we want more. We want to be used more by you. As this community of faith, we want the gospel to pour out of this place and to pour into the lives of other people. And Father, I pray that as we move into 2015, that you, by your grace, would give us a passion for people, a passion for the gospel, a passion to find avenues to get into people's lives and to be able to have the conversations we need to have. Father, I pray you give us wisdom as elders and leaders of the church to to guide FCF in that direction. Oh, Father, the, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. The times are dark. And yet, Lord, we're not going to focus on the darkness. We're focusing on the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And we're focusing on building your kingdom one person at a time. God, I pray you'd give us grace to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.